You know, the biggest problem is that it is not yet understood what a large-scale operation this will be. Because right now, it is occurring at very, very small scales. In the case of closure of coal mines, we have approximately 30 years to plan for. Consequently, bringing in the kinds of models that are needed. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This episode is part of the Just Transition Initiative, a partnership of the CSIS Energy Program and the Climate Investment Funds. This week, we take an in-depth look at India to understand the opportunities and challenges for its energy transition, as well as how India can ensure that its energy transition is also a just transition. To lead today's discussion, we welcome back Neha Sharma. Neha is an evaluation and learning specialist with the Climate Investment Funds and is part of the Just Transition Initiative. She talks with Ajay Matar, Director General Designate for the International Solar Alliance, Sreshtra Banerjee, Program Head for Climate Justice and Natural Resource Management at iForest, and Mike Ward, a Senior Sustainability Specialist with the Climate Investment Funds. I'll turn it over to Neha now for this discussion. Thank you so very much, Ajay, Srishta, and Mike, for joining us. We're really lucky to have you today, given your extensive experience on energy issues and challenges in India, but also because of your contributions to the yet nascent, but increasingly more active conversation on just transitions in India. We're really eager to get this conversation started, so I'm going to dive straight in. And I will start with Ajay. Ajay, you know, in India, coal is often called king, and India is referred to as a coal nation. Coal is credited to be at the center of growth and development in India. So the question really is for us today, is there an energy transition taking place in India? What is this transition and what are the factors driving it? Neha, we are in the midst of an energy transition and it's largely driven by economics. The cost of renewable energy is nose diving in India. In the evenings when the electricity peak occurs, coal electricity is the cheapest form of electricity. But I have no doubt that in a couple of years, three years, four years at the most, renewables plus storage will be providing electricity round the clock at prices that are more than competitive with coal electricity. Now, apart from this, also note the huge benefits that occur because of lower air pollution when we use renewables instead of coal or petroleum fuels. And that is driving a lot of change, especially in urban areas. This leads to lower health impacts. And because of that, this provides an opportunity, especially for the youth, to say, I am using an electric two-wheeler. It is my contribution to society. It is my contribution to cleaner air. It is my contribution to lowering climate emissions. So there's this mix of factors that drives the energy transition. Thank you for that, Ajay. That was a really helpful start. Um, And Sreshta, turning over to you, do you agree with the factors that Ajay has just highlighted for us? He spoke about declining costs. He spoke about the health and pollution impacts. Would you add anything to these drivers? And I'll add one more thing to this, which is really the big question we're here to discuss. What factors do you think we need to consider or ensure to make sure that this energy transition is just? So, Neha, just to add to Ajay's point, I would like to actually re-emphasize on one of the last things that Ajay mentioned is 
our contribution to the cause of climate change. And I feel that it is the urgency to act on climate change is something which must drive the energy transition and actually leapfrog in many ways. Because, you know, the Global Climate Change Risk Index of 2020, which has just come out, which is saying that India is the fifth most vulnerable country to climate change impacts. And in fact, the Ministry of Finance in 2020 came up with a report where the adaptation costs from climate change has been estimated to be about 1.2 trillion US dollars. If we think of this and in the wake of a COVID crisis that we all are trying to grapple with in the difficult times we are in, this is something we just can't afford. To answer your second question, I would say that, yes, the energy transition process must be fair. And in fact, this is where we are still lagging behind. To make it fair, we really must start talking about just transition. And as I put it often, the just transition will be a strategic, economic and political move as well for the India government. And as well, it will be a complementary. First of all, when we are talking of the energy transition, when we are talking of creation of renewable energy jobs, we really need to think of the employment complexion of the fossil fuel sector, which is largely coal in India. Here, Largely, the sector consists of an informal economy. And the first question comes that how do you account for these people who are part of this informal economy? The second question that we also need to think of is that the jobs that will be created by the RE sector is not going to be in the same areas where we have the coal regions. It is very different region geographically. It has issues of mobility. It has various other issues. So this is where the energy transition must plan for a just transition as well. Most important thing which we are not really recognizing right now is that a just transition process and the decline is coal is already happening at the subnational level. Coal is losing its edge because of a number of reasons. So in many of India's coal regions where Coal India Limited, which is the biggest coal producer of India, is still recording a profit at the national scale. But if we look at the subnational picture, actually many of the mines are unprofitable. And these are closing down temporarily or permanently without any plan for a transition. So while we are looking at a win-win side of the energy transition, this is a big picture that is being completely missed out which I personally believe should be part of the energy transition ambition as well. And if I want to put it, I feel that just transition should be part of the energy transition ambition, as well as our climate change mitigation policies and strategies. Sarishtra, you've highlighted some really key considerations for just transitions, including the need for fairness and equity, and especially the impacts on informal labor, the geographical disparities, lack of social mobility. Mike, turning over to you, you've been doing a lot of research on just transitions in India. You've also been deeply involved with doing similar research in South Africa and other developing countries. So from your perspective, can you share what you may have found unique to a country like India? Is there anything that surprised you? I think you mentioned the kind of nascent use of the term just transition in India. And I think we've seen an explosion of interest in the actual concept. And I think that it's new relative to some of the other developing countries. You know, South Africa, for example, very early on in 2011 already had a very strong Labour policy on on just transition that was very clearly articulated. 
I think though that in India there are many streams of environmental and social work that have been developed over a long time. So things like environmentalism of the poor that uh, Joan Martinez Allier kind of articulated really grew up in India and they looked at things like who is involved in decision making who gets the goods and bads in development decisions. And I think that there's that rich history of social justice, environmentalism of the poor, that needs to be drawn into the just transition discussion. It will enrich it globally, I think. Trist has mentioned the kind of lack of information really on the informal sector. And I think that that really is surprising when you look at the sheer number in that sector and yet how poorly understood it is. The role of the railways, I think, is one that certainly caught me by surprise and the cross-subsidization of passenger mobility by the transport of coal is going to have very widespread just transition implications as uh, the transition out of coal happens and it impacts on many people's ability to move around. And then finally, I think the thing that struck me was the enormous achievements of the Indian government around electrifying villages and households, a huge effort. And yet there are still challenges around reliable access 24-7 to electricity. And that is going to have implications for the kinds of energy systems that we use. And of course, the possibilities for things like distributed solar power to support access if it's done with a focus on justice and inclusion. Thank you. And you've all already started highlighting several of the development challenges and how they intersect with just transitions. For example, Mike, you started speaking about energy access, which is going to be critical to the conversation of just transitions in India. Just taking a small step back and looking at what a just transition is and how to achieve it. The Just Transition Initiative has conceptualized just transitions through three interrelated concepts. The first is distributional impacts or who gets what in a transition. In the case of India, this will mean in a transition away from fossil fuels and towards more renewable energy, as Ajay was describing, who might win and who might lose from the changes that are about to occur and are occurring. The second dimension is social inclusion or who gets to decide who is really part of the decision-making processes. And this refers especially to those who may have historically been excluded from decision-making processes. And the third really is, will the transition lead to fundamental, systematic and at scale change or transformational change for the better in terms of how communities and societies function? So with these dimensions or concepts in mind, particularly distributional and inclusion aspects, Ajay, could you share some thoughts on who you think might win or lose from the energy transition in India and who will get to decide? I have found it convenient to break this down into three pillars or three elements. You know, when we look at distributional impacts and social inclusion, the first is the economic impacts. So whether it's employment, whether it's income impacts, and clearly the people who are employed in coal mining and in the conversion of coal into electricity are the people who are most affected. Now, coal mining occurs in particular pockets of coal-bearing areas in India. That is where this is going to occur. And most importantly, it's going to occur for the coal miners. And this comes to the second component that I was talking about, which is the environmental component, because the miners are the people who actually were there earlier. They were earlier farming. Now, the mining activity has destroyed the farmland. These people can't go back to farming. Also, it's been one or two generations. They've actually lost the skills, the expertise that is needed for farming to happen. So the first is economic. The second is environmental. And the third is social. 
because you know there are communities that are broken up once you have created these kinds of coal mining communities what happens is you have a huge influx of people who come in and this is particularly as far as skilled and the higher grade jobs are concerned these are supervisors engineers and so on the technocratic people who are out of mining colleges who come in who are managing this and there's a wonderful study that has come out which is looking at places where mines have closed we ourselves have been involved in some parts of this country the first thing that hits you is that these places become ghost towns because all of these people who have regular employment who have formal degrees move out of those places there are no economic lifelines to sustain them socially environmentally economically these are broken regions they are broken communities the other issue that we are foreseeing is that the places where investment in the renewable energy technologies will occur are obviously geographically separate they are also economically a different class of people you need a certain set of skills to be able to provide wherewithal to the services to the solar or wind energy sectors which implies that skills and expertise becomes a key in the concept of a just transition Thank you Ajay for bringing in the nexus between economic environmental and social concerns which is really at the heart of any conversation on just transitions and I wanted to continue looking at this nexus um and ask you Srishta do you think given what Ajay has just said especially his focus on social considerations do you think that traditional forms of measuring benefits and loss are going to capture the elements of a just transition what are we at risk of missing if we only look at say job creation or economic value added To begin with Neha I would like to say that we need traditional forms of cost benefit analysis and I say it for the reason because given the complexity of the coal industry and the challenge of this topic on the policy front we need to bring on board various stakeholders so in that sense a traditional sense of cost benefit analysis will be important to move the needle on the policy front and to bring together stakeholders like the investors the policy makers and so on but i feel it will be limiting if we just limit to that and here is where the challenge is so if we solely go by the traditional measures of cost benefit analysis and history has shown us i mean if we look into what has happened from globalization the economic impacts and the experience that we have from it is yes there will be certainly many who will be falling through the cracks for example the biggest challenge for india is the challenge of the informal sector the huge proportion of the informal workforce it's very very difficult to measure what kind of benefits they'll have the costs of them and all that that's the reason we really need to think of a little differently when we plan for a just transition in india and talk about it or model for it what we need to do is think of fundamental changes which can be transformative in nature this is because the idea of justice that underpins the concept of just transition in the indian context if you go to some of the coal regions it is very clear they suffer from poverty they suffer from underdevelopment some of the worst human development indicators in fact there is something called a multidimensional poverty index which has ranked many of the coal district having suffering from various indicators of multidimensional poverty such as healthcare education living standards so on and so forth and income levels are also very less this is something we need to address and then there comes the question of procedural justice and this is more important because when the development projects had come in in this regions people have been in money case excluded 
from the decision-making process. There have been issues of displacement. There have been issues of inadequate compensation. And we have very poor records on this, but there are enough volumes that has been written on it. Now, how do we account for that? And we believe that just transition is an opportunity to address this process of social exclusion, distributive injustice, and what has happened. So this is how I would say that we need to look into just transition from the process of social exclusion and going beyond the traditional way of measuring cost-benefit and driving decision-making just based on that. Srishta, I really appreciate your characterization of this as an opportunity to sort of right historical wrongs and focus on social inclusion. So I'll just open up and maybe ask Mike, Ajay and Srishta if you want to answer this as well. But how do you capitalize on this opportunity for social inclusion? Are there existing mechanisms that can be used? Are there new mechanisms that will need to be created? And maybe I'll jump in as a start to it. I think that there are certainly a number of issues and opportunities here. And when we talk about kind of transformational change, we start to highlight issues of scale and the systemic needs to work. And I think AJ highlighted the importance of the geographic distribution of the benefits and harms in these transition processes. And I think that there is an opportunity and there are examples of district level, state level and national level governments working together to start to address some of these issues. And they will need to work together across different geographic dimensions. And there I think that there's an opportunity for the climate investment funds and other climate funds that are committed to things like a programmatic approach to support with their convening power support engagement that works towards what stress is referring to as procedural justice. It engages and works with people. I think that there are opportunities still for climate funds to invest uh, and to use concessional finance. As AJ said at the beginning of the podcast, things like photovoltaics and wind are probably commercially competitive, but certainly the opportunity exists to provide concessional finance for things like uh, storage to support the work with things like grid integration, uh, that kind of work. And then there's an opportunity, I think, to do some long-term planning. Again, Shrestha mentioned kind of cost-benefit analysis. I think that there are many kind of systemic modeling tools that we can develop and allow us to understand better where and what uh, needs to be part of just transition work. Thanks for that, Mike. And now turning to you, Ajay, I think Sreshta and Mike have brought up three things that are quite interesting. One is the need for skills development and the role that that will play. Sreshta spoke about social inclusion and procedural justice. And I wanted to ask you what I was asking before about mechanisms to ensure that this might happen. And Mike is speaking about really transformative change and the role that climate finance can play. My apologies, I know these are quite distinct and quite large topics, but we'd love to hear from you on your reflections on all or any of these. I believe that climate finance is essential to address some of the issues which no other kind of financing can address. And I'll give you an example which I spoke of earlier, which is skills. Let me give you an example. I have a postage stamp size farm in the state of Uttar Pradesh, which is the most populous state in the country, in a central part of that state. I have a photovoltaic pump on my farm. But if I want it repaired or if I want something done to it, I need to bring in mechanics or technicians from about 70 kilometers away, which is the nearest large town. There are guys in this village who say that they are trained in solar, but they don't have any knowledge. How will these guys develop the skills that are necessary? So whether it is the people who are losing jobs, 
or whether it is the new jobs that we create, ensuring that these start providing opportunities to people is important. And therefore, an imaginative skills development program which reaches out at the level of villages, at the level of youth, is important. The other point that I would like to mention here is that at the end of the day, many of these are really very local, localized issues. We were looking at a district in Madhya Pradesh where mining has stopped because of exhaustion of resources. The impacts are not even at the level of a district, forget a state. They're not even at the level of a subdivision of a district, which is called a tehsil. Who helps? Who does that? So what we need to empower, that means we need to train the people who are called block development officers. These are the guys who actually provide the kinds of intellectual resources They bring in, they channelize the states, the government's financial resources, which go into various kinds of infrastructure. This is the level at which action actually occurs and is essential in order to move ahead. My own belief is that unless we start looking at this level of granularity, we will miss out the wood for the trees. And Ajay, staying on some of the things that you said, what do you think are the impediments to this actually taking place? Like, is it finance? Is it coordination? What is stopping from this occurring today? You know, the biggest problem is that it is not yet understood what a large-scale operation this will be. Because right now, it's occurring at very, very small scales. In the case of closure of coal mines, it's only happening at the level of mines which face exhaustion. And as I mentioned earlier, this turns into ghost towns. Now, imagine if there are hundreds, no, thousands of ghost towns across the country. Now, it is correct that we have, like any other developing countries, we have approximately 30 years to plan for. Consequently, bringing in the kinds of models that are needed. If you're going in for large-scale skill development, then we need to train trainers. That has to happen now in order for those guys to be able to provide the training that is needed tomorrow. So I do not see that governments in India or in any other country are unwilling. It's that we need to provide them the kinds of models that are needed in order for this to happen. So We need pilots. We need to see what is it that can happen. We need pilots in more than one geographies. This will come out with the kinds of economic enterprises that you can do. It will tell us what is the kind of social infrastructure that you need to build, whether it is marketplaces or whether it is transportation hubs, so that the people who are affected continue to have high quality lives. And the new kinds of technologies are also able to provide the kinds of opportunities people can then use to take advantage of the change that is happening. Sajay, you're speaking about long-term transformative planning, but you're also speaking about anticipatory skills development and taking advantage of the fact that I worked quite closely with Mike on just transition. So I know how passionately he feels about skills development. Mike, I wanted to ask you if there's something you wanted to add. I think it's a very perceptive point, you know, that we can't wait until these new opportunities are there and then suddenly realize that, in fact, we need to import the skills. We need to anticipate what skills we're going to develop and we need to start to put in place the curricula and, as AJ said, train the trainers and make sure that we're ready. The flip side of that, of course, is that we need a process of economic diversification. We need to open opportunities for people to get jobs with the enormous levels of unemployment in many developing countries. 
And so that economic diversification, I think I Forrest in their new book, talk about induced dependence on coal. And that induced dependence comes from the fact that in some instances, coal mining, for example, has destroyed traditional agriculture, it's destroyed access to forests. And we need to recognize that part of the economic diversification will also be rural economic diversification. It will be restoring agricultural potential of this land. It will be the restoration of ecosystem services. And we need to value those ecosystem services so that people can be paid to restore them. And then we need to start to develop the skills that allow for that move into a very radically diversified uh, economy in these places that have been so dependent on coal for so many reasons. I think Mike has hit the nail on the head, economic diversification. I remember reading an article in the New York Times which said that in the Appalachian areas, what may make more money than even coal mining is beekeeping, honey bottling. It opened my eyes because, you know, in my mind, the coal mines would be replaced by solar panels. No, it's the wrong areas. We're looking for other kinds of jobs. And then I realized sitting in Delhi, there's no way that anyone can figure out you need X job here. No, those will come bottom up. That is the kind of institutional mechanism that we need. That's why the block development officers are important. They are the people who actually know what is it that can happen in those kinds of places. Srishta, your book from iForest has been brought up. So we would be, unless if we didn't ask you, if you had um, some thoughts to share on this idea of economic diversification and also the energy agriculture nexus. So Neha, I would like to just step back a little bit and first comment on what we have been discussing about the mechanism of social inclusion. So when we talk of mechanisms of social exclusion, in India, actually, it is emphasized in various regulations that are applicable to these regions. To begin with, the Constitution of India emphasizes on local level planning and inclusive planning, particularly involving the local level institutions, which are called the village councils on in Indian language, the Gram Panchayat. There have been planning mechanisms clearly outlined how to go about an inclusive planning process. And it has been outlined by the erstwhile Planning Commission of India. It has been used in various kinds of poverty alleviation planning. One of the biggest programs India, in fact, had and World Bank is uh, very knowledgeable of it is the Backward Regions Grant Fund. It was a major program. And it also talked of social inclusion and inclusion. So there are underpinnings under various laws. The mining law itself, something right now we have the District Mineral Foundation law, which is there in every district, which is talking of inclusion. We have the Environmental Protection Act under which we have the impact assessment notification, which talks of inclusion. We have the Forest Rights Act. So there are mechanisms, there are regulatory obligations which obligates social inclusion. Unfortunately, that has not taken place very often. And this is where I feel instead of thinking of, again, a new set of mechanism, we can learn from these experiences, bring together the experience of this loss and develop a just transition framework and a planning mechanism, just building on these opportunities that we already have. And in the book, since we have already referred to it, this is something we have really tried to build upon when we speak of governance. Now, coming to the point of economic diversification, I think for a just transition of any coal region and coal being the major fossil fuel here, there are a couple of mechanisms through which this economic diversification should happen. 
I would suggest that what Ajay actually gave an example of is there is a huge opportunity of tapping on the natural resource base. Most of these coal mining regions, in fact, if you look at the map of the coal mining districts of India, a lot of them have an enormous amount of still forest cover left. And the forest right acts talk about social inclusion, improving the lives and livelihoods of forest dependent communities. So this is the resource we really need to tap on. Then there is the tourism sector. Of course, you cannot close all the mines and backfill it all the way, but you can develop fisheries around it. And there are many examples. So tapping on the natural resource base is one of the major areas. The second point of economic diversification, and this is something we uniquely pointed out and I would like to emphasize on it, is a coal mine area redevelopment. Coal mine areas really need planning through mine closure. And also, there is a huge amount of infrastructure that has been created by coal companies in the coal areas, such as some amount of hospital, some amount of schools, and so on and so forth. We really need to think of reusing this infrastructure. And also coal mine closure. There are jobs that can be created during the process of mine closure and post-mine closure. Thank you, Srishta. Lots to think about there. Maybe I can pose a subsequent question and ask about district mineral funds. And for the benefit of our listeners, maybe you can describe what these are as well. This is something I feel which gives us an opportunity to start planning on just transition with or without even a policy framework on it right now. Because honestly speaking, that will take a little time. So District Mineral Foundation is something which has been created under the Mining Act as a benefit sharing mechanism with the local community in the mining regions. Now, it is not just restricted to coal, but for that matter, any mineral of that sort. Actually, the idea of it was, you know, started more than 15 years ago. And the conversation was around to institute a benefit sharing mechanism, given the things we are talking today, like historical injustice, the lopsided development that is there. So mining companies currently are paying an equivalent share of the tax they pay to the state government towards this fund. And the funds right now is huge. It is estimated that in Indian rupees, it is some 6,000 crores can come to this. And some of the mining districts are plush with this money. And it's a local level money that is currently there with the local level institutions. And District Mineral Foundation, in fact, we draw, I have drawn a parallel in my writings, is that it mandates exactly the thing that just transition needs to do. For example, it is telling that this fund must be used for livelihood development. It must be used for healthcare. It must be used for improving education. It must be used for ensuring long-term sustainability of this region so something like ghost towns are not created. When we talk of just transition planning, these are the exact things that we need. I would like to say that District Mineral Foundation, right now the money is there. And if we start properly planning through even using this fund, it gives us the seed money to start on just transition. We just need to go with it. And Ajay, do you agree with some of the ideas that Srishta shared for economic diversification and the role of District Mineral Foundation? Absolutely. I think she rightly points out, number one, the money is there and it's available at a decent level. This is important because with the increasing centralization of funds, the availability of such distributed pots of money is difficult to find. That's number one. 
Number two, there is obviously a strong correlation between the place where this money is available and the place where it can be spent with the people who are affected or will be affected. The key issue is that the way it's organized is today essentially around perpetuating more of the same. As Shrishta says, you will need a lot more inputs into these kinds of actions. The planning is done at a much more decentralized level to use these resources to create jobs. It will be great, for example, if social planners become part of the process of thinking how this redevelopment work is carried out using these funds. I think it's a great idea that is there, both of the coal redevelopment plan part as well as of using the funds. As I said, they provide good pillars on which we could work. And it's also a very important lesson. You know, traditionally what we have had in India is there's a little amount of royalty on the sales that accrued to the state governments. But this issue of a district mineral fund is, as Reshta mentioned, relatively new. There's no reason why this lesson cannot be multiplied across the developing world and applied at a decentralized enough level so that actions that occur can reflect the places where the harm has also occurred. Thank you, Ajay. And also for framing this as a lesson that might be relevant beyond India to other developing countries and developed countries as well. Mike, I wanted to ask you if there are other lessons from your work in India that you think are applicable beyond India, but to other developing countries as they look at planning for just transitions and implementing just transition investments and projects? They definitely are. And I think that what we're learning through these case studies, you know, the case studies that we've set out to do within the Climate Investment Funds and working across the projects of the multilateral development banks are specifically there to develop the kinds of local insights that are so necessary given the contextual differences between countries and between even districts within countries around these just transition processes. And so that contextual work is important. I think that one of the things that is coming through really clearly is the need for very careful long-term planning around the transition processes. It's too late when we kind of get caught up against the wall without having done the planning. What the case studies, what the insights uh, being developed in the India work, and particularly the work with Terry on a, the, the kind of case study in India, is this need for identifying particular areas, priority areas, putting in place budgets, plans, skills development in those areas to ensure just transitions. And then, of course, the ability of the climate investment funds through these case studies to look across different countries and to see, as you're asking, you know, what are the learning possibilities here? And things like the District Mineral Foundation, I think, are key insights. The kind of long-term modeling processes that South Africa did in its initial planning Again, our kind of insights that we can share back and forward across the different areas in the climate investment funds creates a kind of common space, a commons, as it were, a knowledge commons and a kind of shared uh, practice area that we can work with. So, yeah, certainly lots and lots of value in this kind of more granular case study work, I think. Thank you, Mike. And for our listeners, I want to mention that the case studies in the book and other links associated with things that have been brought up will be linked to this podcast, so you can find them below the link to the actual recording. So we are a bit out of time, so I will have to wrap up. But I thought we'll do one last round with our esteemed speakers here and ask them, maybe there's a question I didn't ask, or there's a thought you really think you must share when you think about just transitions and the energy transition in India. 
Maybe Sreshta, we'll start with you this time. So Neha, I personally believe that chess transition is an opportunity. And instead of looking at it any other way, I would like to keep it that way very much because there has been things which have not been the right way. But today we are looking forward and we have very fortunately the strides in energy transition behind which we have a lot of momentum. And all we need to do is now to make that energy transition successful, we need to start talking of chess transition, start planning for it, start developing policy mechanisms for it and putting in place the governance mechanisms that can take it forward. So here is where it is. And as I identified, some of the opportunities are already there. We do not have to wait for a time when we have a national level law for just transition or a policy. We can start with what is very much available at the local level. And actually there, the just transition is happening. All the experiences around the world, the studies have shown that it cannot be a top-down approach. It has to be a bottom-up approach. And wherever it has happened as a bottom-up approach, it has succeeded. Wherever it has gone through a top-down approach, it has not succeeded. Thank you, Sreshta. And you're suggesting that we need to have more discussions and conversations about this. And I just want to commend your work at iForest because you've really been at the helm of doing that in India. So kudos to you and your team on really moving the conversation forward. Maybe, Ajay, we'll go to you next. Any last thoughts? <laughs> yeah, think of it this way. There is a very good possibility that if we plan well, the last coal power station will close on the day the last coal mine closes is when the last coal miner retires. Wouldn't that be lovely? And in the process, if we have created the opportunities for people to have found alternate jobs, alternate to coal, that is what will buy the social contract to make this planning happen. So Mike, it seems you're going to have the last word. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Any question maybe I didn't ask, but you really wanted to share? Not so much a question, but I think so many insights coming out of the many inputs from both Sresta and AJ. And I do think that there is an opportunity here the opportunity, though, is going to require some quite serious commitment to acknowledging people's voices in very many different areas and building capacity for people at all levels to understand what a just transition means, what it will require, and what kinds of practices, uh, structures we need to put in place. That will work from local communities that have often been marginalized from decision-making processes to enable them to have a voice, to have an influence on outcomes that affect their lives, but also state government officials who are needing to make some very tough decisions around how best to manage these transitions. National government to kind of negotiate many different competing interests around energy, both looking into their country and looking out as India plays a significant role globally in the energy transition and in the just transition. And I think in that sense to AJ as he moves into his new role in bringing together many developing countries to work together around the renewable energy sector. All strength to him, and we look forward to keeping this conversation going into the future. Thank you very much to all of you. It's been such a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you. We're really wishing you the best of luck in all of the different endeavors related to energy and justice that you are embarking on. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thanks to Ajay, Sreshtra, Mike, and Neha for helping us understand how India is experiencing its energy transition and is also developing a just transition. You can find a link to the case study on the SIF website once it's released. Thank you for listening.